God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the narrative found in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 recounts the story of Noah. More specifically, it recounts a global flood in which all of man, animals, and plants were wiped out in a cataclysmic event due to the wickedness of mankind. Only one man and his family survived, coupled with all the different species of animals that we see today, or kinds of animals found today. This flood legend is well known, especially in modern American culture. We have a movie that came out in 2014 about this flood event, and it was aptly called Noah. Not necessarily that it was faithful to the biblical text, but it does show the prevalence of this sort of imagery, this type of storytelling that's found in our modern culture. And this prevalence of the flood legend is not unique to modern culture. Just about every single ancient culture from around the world has some sort of form of a flood legend. doesn't matter whether they're from Asia or North America or India or Europe. Just everyone has flood legends, which kind of points to this being a shared memory in the life of human beings from cultures all around the world that all remember this one catastrophic event. So here's the Algonquin account. Long ago, when man had become evil, the strong serpent came. He was a foe of the people, and they became embroiled, hating and fighting each other. The small men fought with Nelly Wotit, keeper of the dead. The strong serpent resolved to destroy all men, and the black serpent brought the snake water rushing, spreading everywhere, destroying everything. Then the waters ran off, and the great evil went away by the path of the cave. Here's the Cree out of Canada. A man survived the deluge in his canoe. He sent forth a raven, but did not return. In the punishment, it was changed from white to black. He next sent out a wood pigeon. It returned with mud in its claws, by which the man inferred that the earth had dried, so he landed. The whole people of southwestern Bengal write this. The first people became incestuous and unheedful of God or their betters. Surma Thakur, or Singh Bonga, the creator, destroyed them. Some say by water, and others say by fire. He spared 16 people. Here is the Munda of India. Singh Bonga created man from the dust of the ground, but they soon grew wicked and lazy. They would not wash and spent all their time dancing and singing. Singh Bonga regretted creating them and resolved to destroy them by flood. He sent a stream of fire water from heaven, and all the people died, save a brother and a sister who had hidden beneath a tree. God thought better of his deed and created the snake, lumbering to stop the fire of rain. The snake held up the showers by puffing up its soul in the shape of a rainbow. Now the Mundas associate the rainbow with lumber destroying the rain. Here's a Scandinavian account. Odin, Vili, and Ve fought and slew the great ice giant Ymir, and the icy waters from his wounds drowned most of the rhyme giants. The giant Bergamer escaped with his wife and children on a boat made of a hollow tree trunk. From them rose the race of frost ogres. Ymir's body became the world in which we live on. His blood became the ocean. Here's the Greek legend. Zeus sent a flood to destroy the men of the Bronze Age. Prometheus advised his son Diocletian to build a chess. All other men perished except for a few who escaped to high mountains. The mountains in Thessaly were parted, and all the world beyond the Isthmus and Peloponnese was overwhelmed. Diocletian and his wife Pyra, daughter of Epithemus and Pandora, after floating in the chest for nine days and nights, landed on Parnassus. When the rain ceased, he sacrificed to Zeus, the god of escape. 
So we see a lot of reoccurring motifs in these accounts. Often there is a god who's watching men, and the men become wicked, or the god wants to destroy the men for some reason, and attempts to wipe them out with a flood. But often there are people that survive the flood, and they build some sort of ark or boat or chest or something in which they could escape the flood. And sometimes even in these legends, animals are with them. All the different types of animals survive the flood. So this kind of gives us a sense that the Genesis 6 account is not unique in world history and world cultures. This is a shared memory, a shared event, and there's a lot of familiar themes that line up with the account in Genesis 6. So let's read Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. So what's going on in the text? In the text there's these sons of God, and we know these sons of God are different than human beings because human beings, according to the text, are already multiplying. So this is a special class of person or people that are not to be confused with like normal men. These are sons of God. And from these sons of God, we look down to verse 4, and the Nephilim were created through the unions of these sons of God and daughters of men. And the sons of God is a term we find in Job as well, and it kind of refers to angels. So angels are procreating with women, and God sees this in verse 3, and God says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So what is this referring to, this 120 years? Is it how long people live before they die of old age? Or is this, he's saying, they got 120 years to reform before I just come in and destroy all of mankind? And it's probably that, that it's probably this warning that he might come in and destroy if their actions proceed like that. We don't quite know. It's very ambiguous, and there's a lot of disagreement about what that exactly means. When we reach verse 5, we don't know how much time has passed between verse 5 and verse 3, but it talks about God, the Lord, and when it says Lord, it's using the word Yahweh. So we're talking about the Jewish Yahweh that we meet in Exodus 3. And Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God is looking down on the earth, and he's seen the earth become wicked. And this is not like a foreseen event. This text is presenting God in the moment, learning that man's wickedness is multiplying. Just looking at how the text presents this event, God sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He's not foreseeing it through some sort of future omniscience. There's None of that in the text. There's none of that suggested in the text. In fact, the text suggests the opposite. Verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth. Let's stop and think about that for a little bit. What is God regretting? Is he regretting that man became evil? No, that's not what's happening here. God is regretting something very specific. God is regretting that he made man on the earth. This isn't God regretting that man became evil. This is God regretting his own action in the past. Basically, this is saying, if I had known they would have become this evil, I would not have made man. That's what this is presenting. This is a lot deeper than being disappointed in mankind. This is being disappointed in one's own action 
of creating mankind because of the failure of mankind. So the failure in this text is not necessarily placed on man, but on God. God's blaming himself for the occurrence of what happened. So verse 6, it goes on to say, and this is just highlighting to what extent that this verse is trying to communicate God's feelings, how hurt God is, God's state of mind. And it says, and it grieved him to his heart. So not only is it saying God regretted his own actions, but it affected him emotionally. This is true repentance. This is repentance coupled with regret and hurt and sorrow. And we only get this with a sense that God did not know that this was going to happen. So remember verse 6. Verse 6 is being discussed by the narrator. The narrator is talking about God's state of being, what God does, what he says, and you know how he feels. But verse 7 then goes on to quote Yahweh. So not only do you have the narrator emphasizing God's regret and hurt in his heart, verse 7 reinforces this with a quote from Yahweh himself. He says, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And this word, when God says that he is sorry he has made them, that's the same word that was used in the previous verse for regret. He says, I will blot them out. I will kill man and animals and stuff like that because I regret having made them. This is true regret on God's behalf. And it's said not only by the narrator, but by Yahweh. And it's emphasized in the text. Let's keep in mind what exactly Yahweh is saying he's going to do. He says that I will blot out man and uh, animals and creeping things and birds of heaven. So God is destroying everything. Just think about the level of regret that this text is communicating. So God regrets making man and he shows that regret in just destroying everything he's created, not only men, but animals and birds and trees and just absolutely everything. He is undoing his creation to the most extreme extent. There's a verse that ends this section that says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This Noah, later in the text, is going to be courted by God in order to build an ark to save himself, his family, and all animals. So what's going on here? God resolves to destroy all of mankind, but then he saves a man and a boatload of animals. So David Kleins writes about this event, and David Kleins is a theologian, and he's the, one of the premier scholars on the book of Job, but he also writes about this second repentance of Yahweh. There are two repentances in the Genesis text. First, you have God repenting of making man, and resolving to destroy all of mankind. And God's second repentance is this switch to actually save some of mankind and the animals. So let's hear from David Kleins, and I'm just going to read his uh, paper, pieces from it. It's called The Failure of the Flood by David Kleins. And he writes, According to the biblical narrative, the flood is determined upon by the deity because humans are wicked. He is sorry he has created humans and resolves to blot them out with a flood of waters. The universal flood he plans to bring upon the earth will destroy not only humans, but also animals and the earth itself. Genesis 6.13 His design is therefore to undo the whole work of creation. In the event, according to the narrative, that is the opposite of what happens. Yeah, note that that is key. That sentence. 
According to the narrative, that is the opposite of what happens. The earth survives, the water dries up, the animals are released onto the earth to breed abundantly, and humanity, because of whom the annihilating flood has been sent, is charged with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth yet again. So the deity not only totally changes his mind about the wisdom of creating the world, he also totally changes his mind about the wisdom of uncreating it. The narrative, however, does not say that. It spends some of its time explaining how God decided to destroy the world and how he felt about his original creation. He was sorry he had created humans and it grieved him to his heart, but it does not spend a moment over how he felt about reversing his decision to destroy the world or how or why he yet made another U-turn. So I'm going to suggest something. I'm going to suggest something that David Kleins does not consider. Verse 8 might be the key to this second reversal, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the eyes of the Lord, that's an interesting phrase. It's a phrase that occurs throughout the Bible in all sorts of contexts, most notably in the Proverbs. It says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the good and the evil. And modern Christians kind of take this phrase as kind of like a metaphor about God's knowledge, that God is just watching everything, and these are the eyes of the Lord, keeping eye on everything. But there are some passages in the Bible that do not suggest this at all. Instead, in these passages, eyes of the Lord is a figurative phrase, and it means angels. In Second Chronicles 16.9, we got an interesting phrase, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To and fro, that's an interesting phrase. If we remember back in Job, we see the same phrases applied to Satan. And Satan in this text is presenting himself in front of God, and God says, you know, where have you been? I've been running to and fro around the earth. Next we have Zechariah 4.10. It says, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Again, we have this to and fro imagery. Again, this is kind of like these angels who are holding this plumb line, who are judging. So these angels, these eyes that this text described, they're judges of man in this text. Zechariah 3 and 9 says, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will grave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity from that land in one day. So again, we got this almost apocalyptic, this judgment imagery coupled with these seven eyes. Revelation 5, 6, it looks like it's referencing these seven eyes. And it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, there stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So in the Jewish understanding, there are seven angels who run to and fro on the earth, and kind of judge people, or they, they protect people, just depending on whatever they're tasked. And these, these are angels, and they're called eyes. So angels could easily be eyes. And if this understanding was applied to the Genesis text, let's turn back to Genesis. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So if these eyes of the Lord, if these are angels that go around the earth and judge people or punish people or protect people, what is happening here in verse 8 is that God resolves to destroy the world 
But then the angels intervene on behalf of Noah. They come to God and they say, you can't destroy everyone. Look at this person who is righteous or perfect or something like that. So the text goes on to say this about Noah. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. And that word blameless is the same word for perfect throughout the Bible. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And so what is this telling us? It's telling us that, you know, Noah was righteous. So then the text goes on to say, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And if we remember back to the previous podcast, we talked about Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, it says that the people corrupted themselves. This is the same idea. It says, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And this flesh, it might also be referring to like animals in addition to humans. It's kind of reinforcing the idea that God sees that everything is broken and wants to destroy everything. And this is against Calvinist notions of predestination, that everyone is to the glory of God doing all their sins and stuff like that. This is God seeing that the earth is getting corrupt and flesh is corrupting itself. And the idea is that they did not have to corrupt themselves. And this is against what God wanted and what God planned. And the flesh is doing it on their own volition. So God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We'll skip down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort onto the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And so what's happening here is God is showing mercy to Noah and Noah's family. So Noah's family is never described as righteous in the text. They are being saved by virtue of being Noah's family. And elsewhere in the Bible, when it recounts this, you know, sometimes God wants to really destroy all the wicked people. And sometimes he'll say something like Ezekiel 14, 19 and 20. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So this concept being communicated in Ezekiel is that sometimes people are saved by virtue of being related to a righteous person. Those people are saved because that righteous person just cares about them. But sometimes the people, especially in Ezekiel, the people become so wicked that God is just going to save only the righteous people and just kill all the wicked. So the end of Genesis 6 ends with this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So Noah, did he have to do what God commanded him to do? Was this a predestined event? The text doesn't read like this. It reads more like Noah obeyed God because he had the choice to do so. So Noah builds the ark, and Noah fills the ark with animals, animals that God brings to him, and he survives the flood. Then he gets off the ark, him and the animals, and they sacrifice to God. And we read in Genesis 8, this account, Genesis 8, 20, 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and remember there are seven of each of these clean animals, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, so Calvinists, they kind of understand God as this, uh, you know, this ethereal entity that cannot smell things. God smells this aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, and this is Yahweh, then Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. What does this sound like? This sounds like the exact same reason that God destroyed man. We go back to Genesis 6, and it says in verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on only evil continually. And then in verse 12 it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on earth. So what's going on here? God is deciding never again to destroy the world, and he's deciding never again to destroy the world for the exact same reason that God destroyed the world. So the only way to take this with any consistent sense is that God is learning. God is learning about the capabilities of mankind, and God is adjusting accordingly. Biblical scholar Christine Hayes says about this passage in her lecture series, The Noah story, the flood story, ends with the ushering in of a new era, and it is in many ways a second creation that mirrors the first creation in some important ways. But this time, God realizes, and again, this is where God's got to punt all the time. This is what I love about the first part of Genesis. God is trying to figure out what he has made and what he's done, and he's got to shift modes all the time. And God realizes that he's going to have to make a concession. He's going to have to make a concession to human weakness and the human desire to kill. So Christine Hayes goes on to explain that this concession is that now we are allowed to eat animals, we're allowed to kill and eat animals, with the caveat we're not allowed to consume their blood. And she also mentions that now a new manslaughter law is instituted. Not before, but now people are required to execute murderers. I really like how she describes this. God has to punt a little bit. And you get this punting throughout Genesis, like she describes. In the Garden of Eden, in that situation, God has to try to figure out what to do with a mankind who has rebelled, who has uh, done what he had told them not to do. And he extracts them from the garden, whereas before he had threatened them with death. So God is learning, God is innovating, God is trying to figure out how to deal with these events. And in the Genesis 6 through 8 text, God just gives in and he lowers his standard for mankind. Now, whereas before he would destroy all of the earth because it's wicked and he regrets making the earth, now he lowers his standard. He tolerates the earth with this lower standard. He's still mad when murder happens, but he kind of has grown to expect this from mankind. So let's recount the entire story of the flood, Genesis 6 through 8. God sees man. Man becomes wicked. God grieves in his heart. God repents that he made man. God regrets making man. And God resolves to undo his creation. Not only do we have the narrator of the text describing God's repentance and regret, but we also have God quotes from Yahweh in which he says that he regrets making mankind. There are some angels, the eyes of the Lord, who advocate on behalf of Noah, perhaps. You know, that's, that's kind of speculative, but it kind of works with how the eyes of the Lord are used throughout the Bible. 
And uh, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God resolves to save Noah and Noah's family. Noah's family was not righteous like Noah was. They were saved on behalf of him because he was righteous. They were saved by Sacabine family. And so God commands Noah, and Noah listens to God, and he, God commands him to create an ark, create a boat that's going to house all the different types of animals that we see today. Two of each of uh, most animals, seven of each of clean animals. And Noah does this, and God brings those animals to Noah. The flood comes, the flood goes, Noah gets out, he built an altar to God, and the text says that God smelt the incense burning, God smelt the sacrifice, and so then God makes this uh, covenant with Noah. And this covenant is that he's never again going to destroy the earth because of man's wickedness. He has now learned that mankind is wicked from his youth. Whereas before, you know, that was just unthinkable, unimaginable. God has come to this realization about mankind. So this text refutes any notion that the author had in mind any of the classical attributes of God. You know, that God's infinite and unchanging and can't be affected and, and is living in this eternal now and knows the future exhaustively. All of those things are not only absent from the text, but they are counter to the text. If any of those things were true, the text just would not make sense. Can God be affected? Can people prevail upon God? Does God feel grief? Does God save people not based on what they do and how righteous they are, but based on other factors like who are they related to? Does God foresee that man's going to become this wicked? And what does this mean that God repents and that he regrets? That's reinforced in the text, not only by several quotes from Yahweh himself, but also from the narrator. And it makes sense in context because God shows his regret for creating the world in a total destruction of the world. So the text says that God repents, and then God fulfills that repentance through actions of destroying what he regrets creating. This is all very solid narrative, and the story makes sense. And the story does, does not work if you try to factor in these traditional attributes like omniscience. How does God repent of his own actions if God foreknew that he would regret making his own actions? Why does he become angry when he sees that mankind has become evil? Isn't he always angry? You know, what is going on with this double repentance with uh, saving Noah almost as an afterthought from his original decision to destroy earth? And what is with God deciding never again to destroy the earth for the same reasons that he destroyed the earth? Especially if he had some sort of future total omniscience. Did God know that he was going to resolve not to destroy the earth for the same reasons that he destroyed the earth? If so, why is that not a contradiction? It only makes sense in light of open theism where God is not this omniscient God and this eternal now unchanging that foresees everything in the future. That just does not make sense with this text. It doesn't bode well to try to dismiss this text by claiming it's some sort of anthropomorphism because that ruins the text. So if God actually did know the future, what does any of this mean and what is it communicating? The Calvinists will say it's uh, communicating some sort of process change, but why is the process changing? For what reason? And the text gives the motivations of the characters It's directly in the text. So it's not like... Uh, a figurative description of God having eyes, whereas God doesn't have eyes, and it means his knowledge. This is ascribing emotions to God. Emotions coupled with action, which 
you don't really, you can't just dismiss that as saying that's just some sort of a figure of speech, like someone has eyes or, you know, someone has a right hand man who's not actually a hand, but actually a man. Those are metaphors, and this doesn't work as a metaphor because it's integral to this story, and it works in conjunction with the events that are described in the story. We can't dismiss it. It can't be dismissed out of the text. And if you're going to do that, you're dismissing the entire story of what is happening. Because the story events just don't make sense with those concepts in mind, those Calvinist concepts. So we are about out of time for today's episode. If you like this episode or just want to make comments or questions, please put that on our God is Open webpage. Or you could start a thread on our God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. <music> Oh, 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 oh,